All right, Matthew chapter 20, looking at verses 17 through 34. If you have your Bible, you can join us there. If not, you are welcome to follow along on the screen. Three different little narratives tonight. Three narratives that all push together into one cohesive whole as we see a proper response to his passion. Follow along as I read verse 17 of Matthew 20. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver them <clears throat> deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him she asked him for something and he said to her what do you want and she said to him Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, We are able. And he said to them, You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to, the, to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us. Son of David. And the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. And stopping, Jesus called to them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Will you pray with me? Father, as we come together, I ask that you would bless the reading and the teaching of your word, that it would be profitable, that it would not return void, and that you would draw people closer to yourself as a result of our being here tonight. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Last time we were together, we talked about this parable of the kingdom, and we were looking at these different characteristics of what it will be like in the kingdom. That was two weeks ago. Tonight, we're looking at Jesus foretelling his death, a mother's request in the blind seed. Now those three stories, as we read through the passage, 
they don't really seem like they all fit together, do they? What does Jesus say he's going to die? And what does the mother of James and John asking Jesus for her boys to sit in a place of preeminence in the kingdom? And what does a couple of blind dudes outside the city of Jericho, how do they have any connection in what we see in Matthew chapter 20? Now, I want to remind you of one little aspect of things when you read the Gospels. Not everything you read is strictly chronological and just back to back. Just because we went from reading 17 through 19 where Jesus is foretelling his death and then we move to this mother comes and makes this request, it doesn't mean that as soon as Jesus took a breath from saying what he said that this mother is coming to say, say this. It's in close proximity, which is why Matthew will use a word like then. As in, the next thing in line was this. So that time indicator helps us. But it's intentional for Matthew that he puts these things together so that you can see some things. Now, what is it that he wants you to see? Hopefully our outline tonight will help you see how these are all connected. Jesus addresses his passion... You understand what the passion of Christ is, right? Have you heard that before? Maybe you know it as a movie title. Why do we call it the passion of Christ? It's not a word you really find in the New Testament, the passion. So why do we call it that? Have you ever considered that? Because that's just what Jesus loved to do. That's what our word passion is. His mission, yeah. We, the word passion comes from the Latin word which means to suffer. So an equivalent of the passion of the Christ would be the suffering of the Christ. We call it his passion week or his suffering week. So here's what I want you to think about. I don't want you to see three independent stories. I want you to see in light of Jesus pursuing the cross, one person or one entity, they pursue their own position while another entity, they're pursuing pity from the one who is to pursue that cross. Hopefully that kind of, it's a fan, there's a fancy word for this in literature, it's called a juxtaposition. It's the idea of placing two opposing thoughts next to each other to kind of highlight the contrast between them. We are pitting this side versus that side. He wants you, Matthew wants you to see, here's the wrong response, Here's the right response. Now let's get into our passage this evening and talk about Jesus pursuing his passion. Verse 17 tells us that as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. Now he's going up to Jerusalem. Why does it say he's going up to Jerusalem if he's actually headed south in, in the cardinal directions? Why does it say that he's going up to Jerusalem? Yes, they're going up in elevation. Every time you see the phrase, they're going up to Jerusalem, they're increasing their elevation. What city did we read in our passage? We'll talk about it shortly. What city does he visit later in the passage? Jericho. Where was he in our last passage? No, he's not to Jerusalem yet. He's headed there. He was in Galilee. He is headed south. He is going up to Jerusalem through Jericho. And he takes the 12 disciples aside. He has had large crowds with him, 
And literally, he pulls the 12 over to the side, and he wants to intentionally speak to them in a private manner. And this is what he says to those 12. He says, see, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So let me ask you this. Let's ask, why does Jesus conceal his death, his foretelling that he's going to die at the hands of the Gentiles and rise from the grave the third day? Why doesn't he want everyone to know he's going to do that? Why is he keeping this a secret? Yeah, Logan, I think you're spot on. When the, all these crowds start finding out that Jesus' life is at risk, you think they're going to let it happen to him? They're not going to be okay with that. Those of you that know what happens in the very next chapter, what happens in the next chapter of the book of Matthew? Turn your Bible over there. No, that's not the next chapter. What is it, Jubal? His triumphal entry. What happens at the triumphal entry? Yeah, they're, they're yelling, Hosanna. What else are they doing? Laying down their clothes. Yeah, they're laying down their clothes. They're waving palm leaves. They're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Does that sound like a city of people that are going to crucify him? No. No. And we'll talk about that dynamic as we get into those passages. But Jesus does not want the masses to know this. He doesn't want them to know of his impending death. And maybe more so than his impending death, maybe it's his impending resurrection. Because more than wanting Jesus to be the sacrifice for their sins, they want Jesus to defeat Rome. They think they have a physical kingdom deliverer in front of them. But he tells the twelve, this is what's going on. We're going up to Jerusalem and I'm going to be delivered over. Who am I being delivered to? Who does the passage say Jesus is going to be handed over to? Who are the people? Chief priests and the scribes. The religious leaders. And what are they going to do when they get a hold of Jesus? They condemn him to death. Now we see this title. And the Son of Man. And I need someone other than this front row to answer my question. Where is the title, Son of Man, from? Have you ever heard it before? You have. Daniel. All right, Sean helped you guys out. What chapter in the book of Daniel? Daniel 7. Now, students, here's what you have to consider. Every time... Every time that you see the title Son of Man, we have to take into consideration what Jesus means when he says Son of Man. So let me remind you that about this title one more time. Because I'm going to show you in just a second how big of a title this is for Jesus. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Daniel sees in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there comes one like a son of man. You guys see that? It's the indefinite article. There is no indefinite article in Hebrew 
or in Aramaic, it's simply just the absence of an article before a noun. There is a definite article or the word the in Hebrew, and it's not there. There, one, there comes one like a son of man. So Daniel sees someone coming in the clouds that looks like a human, looks like the offspring of a man. And what does this offspring do? He comes and he is to the, at the Ancient of Days. Now, the translators capitalize Ancient of Days for us. Josh, why is it that they capitalize Ancient of Days? Who do they want you to think of when you see Ancient of Days? God the Father. And there, that God the Father, the Ancient of Days, where he is presented before him, and to him, now who's the him in verse 14? Who's God the Father. No, who's the him referring to? The name Jesus is not here. The son. son of man. That this individual that is a son of man, it comes to him, and to him is given something special. Dominion, glory, a kingdom. And who's in that kingdom? All people, all nations, all languages, that they should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, in Daniel 7, the title is A Son of Man. But the title in the New Testament is not A Son of Man. What is it? It's The Son of Man. Now, how do we get the transition from one to the other? The title here is to refer to, I see someone that looks like a human. When we get to the New Testament, the word the, Brian, is to tell you, you need to think son of man, not as in you look like a man, but it's the Daniel 7 son of man. You're supposed to be thinking of this dominion when you see that. Now that title is by far Jesus' favorite title for himself. Here's how often it's used. 30 different times in 28 verses in the Gospel of Matthew. It's used 14 times in 13 verses in Mark. 25 verses... 25 times in Luke, 13 times, and 12 verses in John. Now, by comparison, that is 30 usages, 14, 25, and 13. You guys got it? What's that add up to? 82. So, Zach, 82 references compared to 26 in all of the Gospels where he calls himself or is referred to as the Son of God. Almost four times as many usages of Son of Man as the title Son of God in the Gospels. He loves this title for himself. Because this is the title that says, The glory, the honor, the dominion is coming to me. And it comes to me because of what he's about to do. How does he get the title, the Son of Man, because he is, verse 19 tells us, delivered over to the Gentiles. Now, this is what's kind of mind-blowing about Jesus' work. Is in his death, who really is it that condemns him first and foremost? We read it. Who condemns him first? Look back at your Bible. No, it is not God that condemns Jesus. The scribes, the chief priests, they're the ones that condemn him, but who puts him to death? The Romans or the Gentiles. And now, 
those people, according to Daniel 7, they're actually going to become part of his family. Now, I want you to look at the, spe the specifics that are listed here. Think about Jesus' passion. Think about the time of Jesus' crucifixion. This is by far the clearest, most detailed prediction of his death of all that we've seen. He says, here's what's going to happen, guys. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be beaten or flogged. And then, not only are they going to kill me, but here's how they're going to kill me. They're going to crucify me. And then, he says this, he will be raised on the third day. What I think is so interesting about the grammar of this is what of all these actions is Jesus doing? None of them. They're all passive. They're all passive verbs. Someone else is doing the mocking. Someone else is doing the flogging. Someone else is doing the crucifying. And it's even mentioned that someone else is doing the raising. Now, we'll find out later on and through other passages that Jesus actually takes up his own life as well. He's the one who lays it down. He's the one that picks it up. Why does he get to do that? Because the one that's raising him is equal to himself. Because he is equal with God. He is God. But now he is specifying all of these details. So let's ask ourselves this question then. How many times has Jesus foretold his death? This is at least one. So how many? What do you think? So far in the book of Matthew, how many times has Jesus said he's going to die? All right. Jubal's got a heading in his Bible that says three times. Do you know where any of them are? They're in Matthew. Great. Matthew 16. Now, hey, I want you guys to compare the details. Look at what's not included in this one. From that time, Matthew 16, 21, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem so we know where he's going and suffer many things. Does he say what kind of things he's suffering? No, but our passage in Matthew 20 tells us what he's suffering. He's going to be mocked, flogged, beaten, and ultimately crucified. 1621 only tells us that he's going to be killed. And what group of people is not mentioned in 1621? The Gentiles. The Gentiles. They're left out of it completely. You want to know why? I think if the Jews heard that then, they'd be like, uh-uh, we're not working with the Gentiles for that. The next chapter, Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23, now they're in Galilee, and Jesus says to them, and there's his title again, the Son of Man, he is about to be delivered into the hands of man. And what are they going to do? They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day, and it greatly distresses those men that heard it. So we know from our two previous foretellings, he's going to be in Jerusalem for this stuff. He's going to be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. He's going to be killed. He's going to be resurrected. But we don't know any of the specific details. But now we get that it's the Gentiles that are going to do this to him. Now there is some mocking and some flogging. You guys that know the rest of the story, why is it that Jesus is mocked and flogged? It's not because he says he's the son of God. Why is it that Pilate orders all the beatings of Jesus? To please the Jews? What's Pilate trying to do through the whole story? 
It ultimately leads to him having a bowl with water. He's trying to prevent an uprising, but what else is he actually trying to prevent? His hand. What is he trying to stop? What? He's trying to keep his job, yes, but what is Pilate trying to prevent? What? Whose death? Jesus' death. Pilate's hope is that in my mocking and in my, in my beating of you with the cat of nine tails, with the rod, when you get all of this destruction to your physical body, that the Jews who want you dead, they will see what I've done and they'll be okay with it, and then we'll, we can stop there. But Jesus is telling them, Blake, all of these things are going to happen to me. With great specificity, he knows exactly what's going to happen to him. So given that Jesus knows what's going to happen to him, and then he tells his disciples specifically, then we get to this strange request, which is like, you just heard that your mentor and your teacher for the last three, three and a half years is about to die. And what is it that you would like to know? Can I sit next to you when I'm dead too? Like, that's the request. Now, who is it that makes the request in our Matthew passage? Who makes, who makes the request? Who is it that makes the request? The mom makes the request. Now, you don't have to turn there. But I'm going to read out of Mark. Mark 10.35 says this. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for him? And they said to him, Grant to us one to sit at your right hand and one to sit at your left in glory. So in Mark, when Peter is retelling that story, he retells it as in James and John did the asking. But in Matthew, who is it that's doing the asking? The mom. the mom. Well, now we kind of have a predicament, don't we? Well, what we end up seeing as we look at it is that Jesus is approached by really all three of them. She goes and her sons go, but who is it that really wants the answer? It's her sons. Now think about this with me for just a moment. This is John. What do you know of this John, the brother of James? Who is it that's making this request? Do you know who this James and John are? Yes, they're the sons of Zebedee. Yes, I got it. They have a nickname. What's their name? Sons of what? Thunder. Sons of thunder. What was their job before they followed Jesus? They're fishermen. Do you know what they do after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? Do you know what John is accused of or charged with at the crucifixion? 
What is John charged with at the crucifixion? What'd you say, Jeremy? No. Uh, being being um, associated with Jesus Christ. Nathaniel, what's John charged with at the crucifixion? Uh, to care for Jesus' mom. Care for his mom. Guys, don't miss this. The man who in a couple chapters is going to be said, hey, take care of my mom while I'm gone. This is not a strange person to Jesus. This is not someone who is distantly associated with Jesus. We could almost classify this as one of Jesus' best friends. He is labeled in the Gospel of John the disciple who Jesus loved. It's not out of characteristic for the one that Jesus loved to come to him and say, Hey, can I sit next to you in the kingdom? Of course he would ask that, Albert. He's been following this man for three and a half years. In just a few short days, he's going to be charged with caring for his mother. He will be the one who is left after all the other disciples are dead to write of the things that will happen at the end of time. That man is asking, can I sit next to you? Well, Jesus, if he can't sit next to you, who does? What about James? This James will become the pastor of the church at Jerusalem where the gospel spreads from in the book of Acts. These men, Logan, are so critically foundational to the church as we know it throughout the rest of the New Testament that of course they should get that seat. If not them, who else? Peter and Paul? That's about the only other men we would say would be worth it. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says to them, after he asked them, what is it that you want? And the request is made of sitting at one on the right hand and other at the left. Now you understand this, hopefully. This isn't quite like the arrangement at the lunch table or your seats here in the youth building. What does it mean to be seated at the right hand of Jesus and at the left hand of Jesus? What does that chair mean? What? Okay, that they were spiritual? Favor, what else? It shows power. It shows authority. Think of any medieval movie you've ever watched. You walk into this massive throne room, and there, who gets the biggest chair? The king. Or the queen, if it's, you know, Snow White or something like that. And who sits next to them? Is it some unimportant person who is, like, completely meaningless to the whole thing? If it is the king in the big chair, the queen is next to him. If it is the queen mother, then there would be a prince or a princess nearby. That is who gets to sit next to the king. And they're asking for that position, Brian. And we kind of want to go the audacity for you to ask that of Jesus. And Jesus says to them, you don't realize what you're asking. You are asking for that position of authority, but what really you're asking is this. Are you able to drink from the cup that I am able to drink? Now, he's not addressing through the, hey, can you take a drink out of this bottle? That's not at all what he is saying. What's he referring to when he says, are you able to drink from the cup that I drink of? Are you as worthy as me? Are you as worthy? Yeah. 
Are you able to endure what I'm going to endure? Because here's what their response is. We are able. Now we ask ourselves what cup? If you go and do a little searching through the Old Testament on the idea of a cup, and you eliminate all the usages of a, of a literal cup, you know, Nehemiah the cupbearer, you know, Joseph putting his cup in the, in the satchel of his brothers. Eliminate a literal physical cup. Here are a couple references where you're going to see the idea of an actual cup, of a figurative cup that is being drank from, if you will. Psalm 75, verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup. What's in this cup? Wine. Foaming wine. And it's well mixed. And what does the Lord do with this cup? He pours out from it. And what does he do? And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. It's the idea of literally, he's pouring out a cup on top and it's wiping them away. It's eliminating them. In Isaiah 51, 17, Isaiah pleading with Jerusalem, he says, wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. Why? Because you have drunk from the hand of the Lord his cup. And what is in the cup of the hand of the Lord? His wrath. And here we have the exact same reference. Who have drunk the dregs of the bowl, the cup of staggering. Here's the idea of a cup in the Old Testament. It usually refers to enduring the wrath of God. He pours his cup out on you and you get washed away. You're gone. You're eliminated. He has dumped it on top of you and there is nothing left. When Jesus says to them, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink from? He's asking, can you suffer the wrath of God like I'm about to suffer? Jesus is going to ex experience a level of suffering that no human ever has before. He will not just endure the suffering of the wrath of God for one person's sin. He's going to endure it for all humankind. And so he says... The cup of the suffering that I'm going to experience, verse 23, he says, you will drink my cup. There is some suffering ahead for you guys. It's going to be tough for you. But the reality is, to sit at my right hand or my left hand, it is not mine to grant. But it is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. Because we're told in Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, David says, you sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus doesn't even get to pick his own seat. The Father prepares that seat for him. And Jesus warned them that they were going to have to endure stuff like this. In Matthew chapter 10 and 16 through 25, he reminds them, I'll give you one example, in verse 24, that a, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Why? Because if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. He already told them to be ready for this. So it's understandable that they say, yes, we can endure it. We've known from our perspective for 10 chapters, Jesus. We've known that we were going to endure stuff like this. So what do we do? 
Well, when the ten of the other disciples hear this request, they are indignant. They're angry about this. How dare you, James and John, go up and ask him this? So let's ask ourselves, what is it that makes them mad? Why are they so upset? Are they upset because they asked Jesus a question? No. What are they upset about? Are they upset over the answer? They're indignant. They're angry at James and John. Now why? Why would, would you be mad? You guys want anyone else to be picked first before you get picked? Do you like it when other people get to go before you? No, we, we want to be first. We naturally want to be the first one selected. And the disciples are no different. And Jesus says to them, he calls them, and he says, you know, look, the Gentiles, those other people that are not like us, those rulers, they lord it over them. They hold it over their heads that I outrank you. And they love their great ones to exercise authority over them. We're not like that. It should not be so among you. Because whoever would be great among you actually needs to be your servant. So let's ask ourselves, how well are you doing at serving? Jesus says, in response to who wants to sit at my right hand and who wants to sit at my left, is you have to be a servant. How well are you doing at serving others? And whoever wants to be the first among you really needs to be the slave. Because even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So this concludes the portion of the story with a strange request from these brothers. And as they go out of, Jeruz out of Jericho, heading up the hill towards Jerusalem, this great crowd follows them. And now, rather than seeing Jesus pursuing his passion, or these brothers pursuing a position, we're introduced to two other men who are pursuing pity from Jesus. And these two blind men, verse 30, who are sitting by the roadside, when they hear that it is Jesus passing by, they start to cry out, saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. What does that title, son of David, mean? We talked about son of man. We briefly talked about son of God. But now we're talking about son of David. What does that title mean? Okay, Blake says Davidic lineage. That's a big fancy word that doesn't help me understand anything. Someone else, help me out. Jubal, what does son of David mean? Uh, Jesus is David's, uh, David is Jesus' ancestor. Okay, that David is Jesus' ancestor, all right? What does title son of David mean? Does it have a specific meaning, or is it just saying, hey, you're in the family of David? Okay, since David was a king. <clears throat> I'll give you a hint. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Clearly we don't know our covenants of the Bible. What is the Davidic covenant though? Promise made by God to David. But what is the promise? That his descendant would rule. Okay. What else, Samantha? Do we know anything else about this Davidic covenant? Come on, someone help Samantha out. She got us Davidic covenant that David's son will rule. 
Second Samuel 7. What about his son that will rule? He's going to build the thingy. Okay. But it's very dualistic, Maylene. He says, your son is going to build a house for me. And for your son, I will build his house. But his house is going to be an eternal house. His house will be one where he sits on the throne for all eternity. These men, to call him son of David... understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise God made in 2 Samuel 7. Not only do they know their Davidic covenant, but they know that Jesus is the answer to it. And the crowd that is following them, so we went, remember, we go from large crowd, laborers in the vineyard parable, pulling the twelve aside, this is what's going to happen to me, the two brothers come and ask this question, and now we're back with large crowds. And what do we see? We see they're crying out, calling him the son of David. And they're like, shh, quiet, leave Jesus alone. And they cry out even louder, all the more saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Why are they telling these men to be quiet? These two blind men sitting on the side of the road, why are they being told to be quiet? Why would you tell him to be quiet? What? Why would you tell him to be quiet? Would you tell him to be quiet? All right, let's pause and ask this question. How would blind individuals be viewed in the first century? Okay, they're inferior. Yes, ma'am. Right, they, they're, they're inferior. They're second-class citizens. Hey, shh, you're not even worth as much as the rest of us. Be quiet. We can't hear Jesus because of you. They don't want these men involved in the situation. But these two men, rather than requesting glory for themselves, the honor, the prestige that James and John asked for, these men asked for mercy. So you need to ask yourself this question. Who are you more like in our passage? Are you more like James and John who think you're pretty good and you deserve a special seat in heaven and God should give you something because you're all that? Or do you understand your true position before Jesus and you want him just to have pity on you? Just to extend mercy because you understand if he doesn't have mercy on you, then you are utterly worthless and it is not good for you in the end. And then we have to ask ourselves this question. If you were the one sitting on the side of the road, would you quiet down or would you yell louder? But hey, you have, keep in mind, guys, students, you have two men that are yelling and you have a massive crowd of people that are telling them to shut up. Yeah, Zach, but see, the reality is this. Most students, most Christians today would really struggle being one of two voices proclaiming the truth in a crowd that tells them to shut up. 
we're not willing to speak up and cry all the louder when it's just one or two friends around us? Why would we think that when a multitude is in front of us telling us to shut up, stop asking Jesus to do these things, stop bothering him, you're in our way, that we would actually speak up? I think most of us would be right there with the crowd yelling at the blind saying, yeah, you need to shut up. And Jesus calls to these men and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And their response is, Lord, let our eyes be opened. So what has to be assumed by their request of Jesus for this? That they want to see, but what is what is assumed in asking him that? Okay, yes, we can assume they have eyes and they don't work. Got it. What else can we assume? They want him to heal their eyes, Zach? Why do they want him to do it? Why didn't they ask someone else? Because they believe that Jesus has the authority to do it. They have the faith in Christ that as he walks by, that's the son of David. That's the one 2 Samuel 7 promised us. And I want him to extend mercy to me. They're not calling to James and John to have mercy on them. They're not calling to the crowd to pass out some money. They're not calling to the crowd to ask for a handout. Can anyone help me find a doctor? No, what he is doing is these men are asking, Jesus, I want you to heal me. Because I believe that you can do it. And you have to ask yourself this, students. At what point in time do you ask Jesus to do something for you? Because you are appealing to the fact that he has mercy available for you. And so Jesus, in pity, immediately touches their eyes and they recover their sight and they follow him. Think about the contrast of these stories. As Jesus is pursuing his passion and telling his disciples, this is what's going to happen to me. Two men who didn't get to hear that part of the story, who didn't get to hear the flogging, the beating, the mocking, the crucifixion, and the resurrection on the third day, two men who didn't get to hear that, walk out at the end of the chapter receiving the healing that they had faith for, the healing that they requested, and two men who were there for all of it, who walked out wanting, I just want a place of prestige in the kingdom, Jesus. Make me famous. Give me the authority. And who is it at the end of the chapter that is praised? It was the ones that the rest of the crowd said, you guys just need to shut up and stop bothering Jesus. And they're the ones who walk out of the chapter as the hero. The hero of the faith. The celebrity, if you will. Y'all were healed because you resisted the temptation to be quieted by the crowd. Your faith healed you. You're pursuing the pity of the Messiah is what brought you restoration. And that is what is compared against these disciples who only want the position. So ask yourself this as we close. Given that Jesus 
was willing to pursue the cross for you, what are you in turn pursuing? Are you looking to make yourself well known? Or are you looking to glorify him by appealing to his mercy for you? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the time together. And I ask that you would help us as we go out from this evening to understand these words and apply them to our lives. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.